Welcome to this episode of Profess Hers, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature, all discussed through the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra, and I'm in Galveston with Misty and our favorite guest, Christina. We are here for TXDLA. Texas Distance Learning Association. I presented yesterday. I'm presenting tomorrow. Well, they saved the worst for last. Oh, I got burned so hard. Also, I'm the only one with headphones, so Misty doesn't know what any of this sounds like as it's going. So we're staying in an Airbnb. A very interesting Airbnb. And it's a little bit loud. Both visually and um, <laughs> auditorially. That's not so a word. So you might hear some cars in the background. You might hear the four chihuahuas that are next door. Birds. We just want to let you know that this is not happening in our usual studio. Maybe we should make this our usual studio. <laughs> it's very bizarre in here. It is creative. <laughs> I thought you were going to say creepy. <laughs> creative. What are we talking about today? We're talking about female journalists and female investigative journalists, uh, both, well, all historical. Yes. But uh, at least one of them is still writer. Yeah, yeah, still an active writer. So, Do you want to talk about uh, the bad news first, or do you want to jump into other things? The bad news? Oh, yeah, the bad news. News? Yes. Uh, sure, the bad news is that a... 2014 global survey of nearly 1,000 journalists, which was initiated by the International News Safety Institute. I didn't, I couldn't believe that was a thing. In partnership with the International Women's Media Foundation and with the support of UNESCO, this was a very broadly you supported. Cite all the people uh, found that nearly two thirds of women who took part in the survey, and that's a thousand female or a thousand journalists. Nearly two-thirds of the women had experienced intimidation, threats, or abuse in the workplace. So, I wanted to include that. Go ahead. And an analysis of more than two million tweets performed by uh, a think tank called Demos found that female journalists experienced approximately three times as many abusive comments as their male counterparts on Twitter. Twitter, because that's how I say it now. So that's bad news. You, But Misty included that, and that is only from 2014. That's not very historical, Misty. No, it's not, but I wanted to Are include they, it because we just finished the science episode last week. So nowhere is safe for women. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the, um, the world we're living in. Because in the science episode, we said that a third of women had reported being sexually harassed in some way, shape, or form in their work life. And the numbers here are higher, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't know exactly what we can do about that. But I wanted to include that since we had already talked about it with the previous So episode. I do know what we can do about it. Hire only women. No, that's not the answer. Mrs. I'm joking. That's Mrs. not the answer. dream world. But hire more of them. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I don't know how you fix Twitter, though. I, 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 there are a lot of people. A lot of people in the world that would like to fix Twitter. Very interested in figuring out how to fix it or how to get rid of it. I don't know. It's I don't think we need to get rid of it. It's pretty bad. But we need to fix it. All right. So, so we're going to do a, some, a brief overview. Yes. Because as you probably know, as a writer and writing student, I uh, have a lot of female writers and journalists that I have a great deal of affinity for. So we're going to get into three or four of them 
as you would say, in a deep dive. Uh, but there are a few that we wanted to mention historically. Right, because I think it's important to put all of this in perspective. And you love context. And I love context. And I want to show that this isn't new. Yeah. This isn't a 20th century or even 19th century phenomenon. This has been happening since we've been able to write. But in this country, in the United States, one of our earliest reporters Mm -hmm. as a female is Elizabeth Timothy. And she is reporting in the 1700s. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. She is the first female in the American colonies that has the role of publisher. She Mm. inherited the paper, the South Carolina Gazette, when her husband died. And then she successfully ran it for a few years as a single woman. Wow. Yeah, so that's pretty impressive early on. Elizabeth Timothy. Now, would it have been okay for her as a single woman never being married to start that paper and be the publisher? Probably not. Well, no. I mean, you have to either be living at your parents' house or living with your husband. Right. Yeah. But as a widow, that opened the door for her. You know, all of this historical context that you teach us about women, it really helps me understand. Have you ever read The Story of an Hour by Kate Chopin? No. Okay. Well, I'm just going to tell you. Or if I have, I don't know the name of it. It's a very, very short story. Mm -hmm. And a woman learns that her husband has died on a train accident. And she gets very upset. And then she goes up to her room and she cries. And then she says, free, free, suddenly free. And she says, you know, he wasn't abusive or he wasn't mean, but he still stifled her kind of. And then they, and then she comes back downstairs and she kind of has recovered her wits. And then her husband walks in the door and it's like they've misidentified who died in the train crash. Oh. And then she drops dead. Oh. I've never spoiler heard that alert. story. Sorry, spoiler <laughs> alert. But yeah, and so I've I, I've taught that story and we've, and you know, my students are always perceptive enough to pick up on, you know, like he wasn't abusive, but she didn't get to live the life she personally wanted because she was living the life he wanted for their family to live. Or and even the life that society has yeah. dictated to her. And, and there is a kind of special level of freedom for a woman who's a widow. Right, because you've done what you were supposed to do, and then due to unfortunate circumstances... And now not only are you a single woman, but you're a single woman that nobody regards as being a weirdo. Right. Yeah. So I'm starting to understand that story a little bit more. So I want to jump ahead just a little bit to Anne Newport Royal, and she is the first person who is going to be a travel correspondent. Ooh, a travel correspondent. As a female. And she begins her career late in life. She doesn't really start writing until she's in her 50s. Really? Mm-hmm. And then she is the first female reporter to interview a president, John Quincy Adams. Oh, okay. You said far forward. I thought we were moving like, you Oh, know. I meant like a couple decades. Okay. So this is 1800s. 1700s. But nice try. Whatever. <laughs> you were close. And then moving to the 1800s, we're going to see Margaret Fuller as a literary critic for the New York Herald Tribune. And she also gets to become a foreign correspondent, Ooh. which for a woman was not something that was yeah, easy you can't to do. Let women just travel abroad. Well, that's one thing, right? Abroad. That women being reporters, writers, it was okay as long as they were kind of staying in their hometown. Yeah. We weren't going to see women traveling to report the news. That would be crazy. And you talked before about the Sob Sisters, right? Yes. That was 19, early 1900s? Yes. Yeah, like jazz Chicago. age? Yeah. Yes. So, um, this woman, I wanted to tell you the story just because I think it's really sad. One of the reasons she was able to do this is because when she became a foreign correspondent, 
she and her husband traveled together. Mm-hmm. And then when they had children, the whole family would just travel. That's cool. Yeah. So she is going to be in Italy when the Italian Revolution breaks out in 1847. And she gets to cover that. So not only is she a foreign correspondent, she's covering a revolution, which for a woman, again. Yeah, that's very serious news. Doesn't get to happen very yeah. often. Um, unfortunately, though, when they're returning to the United States, the boat that her and her family are on capsizes and her entire family dies at sea. Wow. Was it the Titanic? <laughs> no. No. She would have been over 100 years old by the time the Titanic sank. <laughs> I don't know. I know you don't know. I, I'm surprised that you knew off the top of your head that the French Revolution started in 1847. I said the Italian Revolution. Okay. The French Revolution was, was in the 1700s. Yep. <laughs> So starting in the 1900s. Okay, the 20th century? Yeah, that's what it's called. In 1936, Margaret Burke White, uh, she's a photojournalist. And that was a new thing. Yes. And she's one of the first women to report on wars. And uh, her pictures appeared on the cover of Life magazine, which at that time was a very important publication. It was like Time or Newsweek. Yeah. Life was a, was a big time, deal. Yeah. They're both still around, right? Time and Newsweek are both still around? I think one of them is no longer in print, but both of them are still around. Okay. But, they but both it's like online still, or yeah. something? Yeah. Uh, Rachel Carson is actually a very important. This is super important. Journalist. Uh, in 1962, she's a science writer. Yes. So. It's almost like prose. Have you, have you read it? Silent Spring? Yes. It reads not like a science writer. And we're going to talk about that because in the 60s, Rachel Carson and Joan Didion invented something called, well, they didn't invent it, but they helped invent and popularize something called new journalism, which is nonfiction, journalistic, reporting, writing, using literary techniques. Um, So in 1962, her book, Silent Spring, very important ecologically or ecological literature, it's calling attention to the dangers of pesticides. Yes. And uh, helped inspire part of the environmental movement that started in the 60s. And then it kind of peaked in the 70s. And this book is still incredibly popular. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, people still read it and refer to it. Mm -hmm. And there was actually just recently a Jeopardy question about Rachel Carson. Oh. Yeah, I watched Jeopardy. Barbara uh, Ehrenreich, who's now a uh, feminist writer... She's a journalist and political activist. She's written 21 books, including her most famous is called probably called Nickel and Dime. I've read that. Uh, that was published in 2001. And that was about the living and working conditions of the working poor in America. Yeah. And every chapter she takes on this new role. Like she's a maid in one. She's living in Florida in one. And it's how would a person in these circumstances make enough to live for the month? Wow. Yeah. Frances Fitzgerald uh, won a Pulitzer Prize. She went to Saigon in 1966 uh, and in 1972, and she published... Because something was happening there. I'm not sure what. Uh, But she published something called Fire in the Lake, the Vietnamese and the Americans in Vietnam. And that was a very influential critique of the war. And of course, that was a woman traveling abroad to a a war zone. Yes. Um, And a war zone, which, by the way, we did not even have female troops in yet. We had female nurses, but not female recruits. Yeah. So for a female journalist to be there, again, fairly new. Margaret Gellhorn, World War II correspondent. I know you are mad that these aren't in uh, order, but they're in alphabetical order. Because I, I was wondering what to because okay. I put them in order, not you. Okay. Um, Margaret Martha Gellhorn, uh, she was a World War II correspondent, and her articles were collected uh, in a book called The Face of War, mm-hmm. and she also wrote about Vietnam and uh, some other wars. And then Catherine Graham, who 
my parents would disown me if I didn't discuss. Yes. Uh, Catherine Graham took over the Washington Post after her husband died in 1963, very similar to Elizabeth Timothy Timothy in the 1700s. So in 1963, Catherine Graham takes over as publisher of the Washington Post. And I would say resistantly took it at first. Yes. Because she had not been groomed for that in her life. And she is played by Meryl Streep in a movie that just came out. Yeah. It's got Tom Hanks, too, I think, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, So she was the publisher of the Washington Post during the printing of the Pentagon Papers and the Watergate investigation. And she got a lot of pressure from the White House and from politicians and from other news agencies to stop printing these uh, Pentagon Papers and reports on the Watergate investigation because they said, well, you're threatening national security and you're going to bring down the democracy and you're undermining the government. And she resisted and said, people deserve to know the truth of what's going on. And of course, the Washington Post... Was not the Washington Post before that happened. Right. I mean, that's Woodward and Bernstein. Yeah. Yeah. This elevates that paper. And she wrote a memoir Mm -hmm. in the 90s, which won a Pulitzer Prize. So she herself was also a writer. Yes. So, yes, those are some uh, more notable, at least on my radar, in terms of writing and reporting. So, yeah. So you want to do our first deep dive? Deep dive. I do want to do a deep dive. Um, also, someone who my parents would disown me if I didn't discuss. Really? My mom loves Nellie Bly. You know, I believe that. She loves Nellie Bly. She's been telling me about Nellie Bly since I was a child. Um, <laughs> like, you'll never live up to her. <laughs> I think that was implied. <laughs> Nellie Bly lived uh, 1864 to 1922. So Nellie Bly is going to be raised and have to work in a society in the 1800s that had not yet opened its doors to women working, Mm -hmm. especially single women and especially in non-domestic pursuits. Yeah. So the idea that we're going to have a female journalist in the 1880s or 90s is already not comfortable for a lot of people. And then the idea that we're going to have her actually doing real reporting. Right. As opposed to like, who's getting married or Gardening. Yeah. Women covered a lot of gardening events. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Old newspapers were really interested in gardening. And like flower growing competitions. Yes. Yeah. And like the county fair. Yeah. Um, Another thing women would often get to do is these help advice column things. Oh, yeah. But, like, I have a stain on my dress. Should I use vinegar <laughs> to get it out? That kind of stuff. Because, you know, men can't do that. All right. So Nellie Bly is going to become one of what we call the stunt girls. So this is a new category of reporter. I think today we would say undercover reporter. Oh, okay. Okay. But, so they lived as whatever they were pur- reporting as? And they were kind of pulling stunts. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, so okay. stunt girls. Okay. So at various times, stunt girls went into factories to investigate work conditions. They looked at child labor. They would become patients of doctors who people had complaints against. Any kind of scam or cheating that they could find in their hometown or in a big city, yeah, they would try to go undercover to uh, report about. That's interesting. I've knew I knew about Nellie Bly. I guess I didn't know that there was a whole cohort of women across the country. She's one of the earliest and probably the best known. Oh, yeah. So they wrote these stories in first person. So they're not objective reporting. Yeah. They're putting themselves into the situation. And so it's like an anecdotal. Yes. Okay. 
And a lot of times these investigations or stunts lasted for several weeks. And so it's kind of like podcasts are today. (laughs) They're getting released weekly or sometimes biweekly. Okay. So you have to get the next issue of the paper if you want to find out what's happening in this investigation. Yeah, there was a lot of serialization in the newspapers. Exactly. At this time, for sure. So this is going to challenge some of our ideas about womanhood. But it also brings us some new ideas about womanhood that are positive. So women can maybe be brave. Mm-hmm. They could possibly be independent. No. No. Ambitious. No, 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 no. But they didn't relinquish their femininity when they went into these investigations. So they weren't gender confused. They were not gender confused. To use the term that people often refer to. Women who have professional jobs, right? Right. Gender confusion. So Nellie is going to begin her big series in 1887. And the title of it is 10 Days in a Madhouse. Love it. So a madhouse is an old way of saying an asylum. Yeah. And asylums were really, really terrible places before the Progressive Era. Oh, yeah. They were horrifying. When was the Progressive Era? Uh, The 1910s and then into the early 1920s. I didn't know that. So, uh, Nellie is going to take an assumed name. So, hold on. I do want to say that 10 Days in a Madhouse was published as a serial, right? Yes. And it was published in the New York World. It was. I'm sorry. Newspaper owned by Joseph Pulitzer. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do you know how I knew that, Misty? Is it going to be a movie? From the movie Newsies. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, I guess as long as you're learning, it doesn't matter how. (laughs) All right. So, she's going to take on an assumed name, pretend Mm -hmm. to be insane. How did she pretend to be insane? It's kind of weird how she did this. Um, She is going, she did speak Spanish. So she's going to present herself as a Spanish immigrant. So she creates a false communication barrier. She doesn't speak English. Okay. And then she is going to act as if she has what at the time was called hysteria. She pretended to be very confused. She pretended to be a little bit aggressive. And the thing is, hysteria at the time was thought to be hand in hand with nymphomania. What? So we can't just have this hysterical woman running through the streets because that would be a crisis for our morality. Oh, of course. Right. So she gets herself put into an asylum. Um, well, when she gets there... She says what was frustrating to her was once she gets in, she stops pretending to be insane. And she says the more sane that she acted, the crazier they thought she was. So within the asylum, she says that she sees people forced fed and that the food was often rotting. She said that she saw beatings. She saw ice baths. She There was a lot of weird treatment methods. And sometimes. Well, um, some it's flat out abuse. Some of no. it is just abuse. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of it is an attempt to control. But a lot of them were like, I think that making you freezing cold will help you. Or I think making you sit still for eight hours will calm you. And just like weird things that now we would immediately know and recognize as being more harm than good. Well, and it's basically in today's world, solitary confinement is what they put her in. Yeah. So she says, take a perfectly sane and healthy woman, shut her up, make her sit up straight from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. Do not allow her to talk or move during these hours. Give her nothing to read. Let her know nothing of the world or its doing and see how long it will take to make her insane. Not long. I would not imagine long. I mean, she lasted 10 days. 
That's crazy. Do you want to know how she gets out? They recognize that she wasn't a crazy person? Nope. So before she had gone into the madhouse, she had pitched this idea to Pulitzer. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to get myself incarcerated. I'm going to write this story. And then I think he might have even like forgotten about it a little bit. But then he remembers that, (laughs) hey, she's supposed to be back. (laughs) So he has to hire an attorney to get her out. Oh, my God. Well, at least someone got her out. Yes, because apparently the saner she got, they were like, oh, these ice baths are not working. (laughs) She's speaking in full sentences now. Oh, and she suddenly learned English. How'd that happen? (laughs) After she gets out and after this paper is published, there is a grand jury investigation of the asylum. Just the one asylum? Just the one. And the care of the inmates in the asylum. Eventually improves. Eventually improves. But just that one asylum. But it just wasn't that like one. a widespread kicking over of the can. No. But once Nellie's story comes out and it's super popular, then you're going to have other women okay. try to do the same thing. So there's a woman who faints in San Francisco and gets herself in a public hospital. Um, there's a woman who's doing the same things kind of in Minnesota. Um, There's a woman who gets herself into a jail to look at the condition for inmates. And it's these stories that are going to spur people to think, oh, my gosh, we need to start doing something because this is not what we thought it was. So she did start a kind of wider spread trend of this investigating hospitals and asylums, which led to better, fairer treatment and more scientifically minded treatment of people. And a lot of women in asylums were um, what people refer to as inconvenient. So um, somebody's mistress or... And not just women, even children who had a disability that we didn't fully understand. Yeah. But somebody who could not fit into our society neatly could sometimes be sent to an asylum. I'm getting back to these stunt girls for a minute. Okay. There's, so she's not the only person who she's did not this the kind only, of undercover. She's kind of the most famous one. Okay. And she is the one that probably kicked this whole thing off. Yeah. But other newspapers saw how well her story sold. And they think, oh, I want to do that too. Sure. Obviously, right? So other stunt girls from other papers all across the country start doing these kind of things. But newspapers did not want to have to pay them a lot of money. Because these are quote unquote not real journalists. And these are women who can write, yeah, but it's not like they're professionals. Well, yeah. I mean, they don't wear tweed jackets. So what a lot of these newspapers did was they would give their stunt girl for their newspaper a, a pen name. But they could replace the stunt girl and keep using the same pen name. Oh, for. Yeah. So Nellie Bly is not like that. Nellie Bly is irreplaceable. Yeah. But a lot of these other girls are not. That's not her actual name, though, right? It is not her actual name. She is Elizabeth Cotrain. Um, Nellie Bly is a much better name. Yeah, I'm trying to remember where she took that name from. I know we had talked about it before. Oh, she took her name from a letter she wrote criticizing a man. That's when she first used it. (laughs) She uh, criticized a popular writer because he wrote a book or sorry, an article called What Girls Are Good For? And she (laughs) had some criticisms of what he came up with. Did she? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was the was the was his article what girls are good for everything? It was just the one word. Women are useless outside the domestic sphere. Oh my god! Right. So while these stunt girls are a way for women to get into the door in journalism, they kept payments low for women, and they become replaceable pretty quickly. 
Just like um, those girl groups. Yes. Yeah. Just like the girl groups from our music episode. Uh, this movement is going to die down by the late 1890s for a few different reasons. But I'm going to argue the big ones are that we are entering some wars there. Yeah. So the focus of what we're covering in our newspapers is going to shift. What wars are we entering in the 1890s? Well, we have uh, the Spanish-American War. And then we have the Philippine-American War. I didn't know about... I mean, I knew about that they existed. I didn't know when they were. Yeah. So what happened to her? I kind of love the end of her life. I love this story. So in 1895, mm-hmm. she is going to marry a millionaire nice. named Robert Seaman. Uh, he is like 70, maybe 71 when they get married. She's about 30. Nice. He's the president of the American Steel Barrel Company and the Ironclad Manufacturing Company. Those sound very American. Very. Very patriotic, I'm assuming. Yes. So, obviously, he is going to pass on before her. Mm-hmm. And then she gets to have a fairly lucrative life, wealthy life, luxurious yeah. life. Yeah, luxurious. Uh, but she mismanages the money. <laughs> and so that doesn't last a whole, whole time, long time. That doesn't last very long. <laughs> and then she dies in 1922. So she's buried in Woodlawn, which is where a lot of wealthy and famous people from New York are buried. Um, Her tombstone? Is that what that's called? Her yeah. gravestone? Yes. Uh, it was bought and paid for by the New York Press Club. Oh, that's cool. And, you know, they put an honor of a famous news reporter. Oh, nice. So I really like it. And it doesn't say a famous girl reporter. Yeah. A famous female reporter. She's just a famous reporter. That's cool. Yeah. So I really like her tombstone. It took them till the 1970s to get it put up. And she died in 1922. That's only 56 years. Yeah. <laughs> right on time. <sighs> so I want to tell you there are a few novels that Nellie Bly's story makes an appearance in and so the stories are fictional. so they're not about her no they're not none of these books are about her neither of these books are about her but she but what ha- what she does her reporting is in both of the books the first is called woman 99 okay and it was written by a female author named greer McAllister. and in this book um there's a kind of wealthy family and there's two daughters in this family and one of the girls or one of the young women has read about what Nellie Bly has done and she basically does the same thing. Her sister has been institutionalized. Okay. She pretends to be crazy. So she's not a stunt girl. She's not trying to write a story about it. No, she's, she pretends to be crazy because she wants to get her sister out of there. Okay. So she, her sister does have mental health issues, but they're not so serious as to be debilitating. And she knows that her sister is being. Could live a life outside. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she knows her sister is being, mistreated so she goes undercover into the same insane asylum to find her sister make sure her sister is safe and then try to get her sister out of there and so she does it because she's like inspired by Nellie Bly uh, and she's read about it and she's familiar with it so it's the same same time period Uh, it's set in the same time period yes set it was written last like this year like last month okay it's and it's I mean it's a brand new book but it's very very good and the other book is The Address by Fiona Davis. So Nellie Bly is like the Forrest Gump in these books. Like she just keeps popping up everywhere. 
Well, yeah. So in this, in in the in the address, Nellie Bly actually is in comes into the insane asylum where this woman is because she's doing her yeah. ten days in a madhouse. Yeah, and it's whatever the name of the asylum is. It's the same one. And so Nellie Bly talks to this girl, and this girl says like, "I'm not crazy. Like this is what's happened." And Nellie Bly, when she gets out after Joseph Pulitzer remembers to get her out of the madhouse. She does some investigating of the story the woman told her and realizes it's true and helps to get her out once she's out. And so obviously that part of the story didn't happen, but um, they use the Nellie Bly story as part of the fictional narrative. And there are, I mean, there are lots of other books. There are like crime books where Nellie Bly is a character. There's a book called The Alchemy of Murder by Carol McCleary. Um, and that's kind of more like a mystery book instead of a, like a character driven story. But yeah, she is a popular character in literature because of course the story is really compelling and there's a lot of literature that we study that deals with women in insane asylums. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're all familiar with the yellow wallpaper. I really like that story. I really like that and one. And actually in Woman 99, uh, the main character's name is Charlotte. And she's named Charlotte like in honor of Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who wrote the yellow wallpaper. And just in case we didn't say it before, the madhouse she goes into is the New York City Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell's Island. Blackwell's Island. Yeah, yes. that's what it's called. Yeah, so in in the address, Blackwell's Island is where the main character is sent. Pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, not... Nellie Bly's pretty cool. Yes. Literature's pretty cool. Locking women up because you don't like the word they're behaving. Not cool. Not pretty cool. Don't recommend. No. It's going to be a no from me. (laughs) So I'm really excited to talk about the next person because I actually didn't know she existed. And I knew nothing about her. But... Good. So what Public happened education is, so what is happened doing is, its job. I read Woman 99. Okay. The author is Greer McAllister. She writes historical fiction about female characters. She wrote a list of other books of historical fiction. And two of them were about Lorena Hickok. And I was like, hey, who's that? And then instead of looking it up, you said, Misty, go do some research. Well, no, instead of looking it up, I read the fictional books about it. Oh, okay. And then I said, hey, Misty, go do some research. Because I don't want to do that. I just like the story and the characters. I don't need to know the historical context. But, of course. Yes, you do. I do. It always does add value. Yay, history. Lorena Hickok, 1893 to 1968. So, Lorena Hickok is born in Wisconsin. And she has a really, really rough home life. So, she has a father who is just kind of known throughout town as being pretty mean. And he beats both Lorena and her sister. So she leaves home at the age of 14. And keep in mind, for a woman to leave home without being married is at that time still a little bit scandalous. Yeah. So she leaves home. It's like 1910, 1950. Yes. Mm -hmm. And she becomes a maid. And then eventually her mother's cousin, Ella Ellis. I'm sorry, what's, what's that name? Ella Ellis. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you're singing the background in a song like Ella, Ella. Okay. Anyway, is going to have Hickok come live with her so that she can finish her schooling. Okay. So she's going to refer to her in her life as Aunt Ella, but it's whatever your mother's cousin is to you. <laughs> the actual family relation. I don't know. I don't either. So she finishes high school and then she's going to enroll in Lawrence College, but she is not successful there. She is going to flunk out after only one year. Ugh. And. Probably a lot of that is because her early education 
she was incredibly smart, but her formal education had been in starts and stops. Yeah, because inconsistent. Her home life. Yeah. Yes. So she's hired by the Battle Creek Evening News to cover train arrivals and departures, <laughs> which is apparently a an important thing to do at the time. Well, I mean, where else do you get when the trains are coming and leaving I except from the local newspaper? So, it's not like you can Google it. So for these personal interest stories and for her train coverage, she makes $7 a week. That sounds fair. And when we say personal interest stories, we do mean gardening. Yeah. She's going to write about some gardening. The new kinds of lace out on the scene. She's going to eventually leave there and she becomes a society editor for the Milwaukee Sentinel. So that's good. An editor. That's yeah. Okay. So um, it is a step up. Um, she's incredibly bored by this assignment. I, I mean, I would, I'm impressed that she became an editor, but also writing society stories does not sound very exciting. No. She eventually is going to convince her editor that she needs to do something different. And so she becomes an interviewer. Oh, that's cool. Yes. And she had hoped to cover World War One when it broke out, but she had trouble adjusting to a city because she had to move to a big city to do that. And so that didn't really work out. What big city? Um, the big city of New York City. Oh, okay. So actually, a big it was city. actually. I thought you were going to be like she had to move to Milwaukee. No, she moved to New York City. Okay, but that didn't work out. I feel so, like I would be overwhelmed by New York City. Yes. So, so she moved back to Minneapolis, and okay. she goes back to the Tribune. She is going to try college one more time. Again, it just doesn't work. And then she is going to get hired by the Associated Press. Oh, that's cool. Yes. For the Associated Press, she gets to cover politics. She gets to cover special interest stories. But our special interest stories in the 1920s do sort of center around politics. So, for instance, the Lindbergh baby. Do you know about that? Lindbergh baby got kidnapped? Yes. Yeah, that was a huge story. And she got to cover that. She gets to have her name. Was that like the only news story in the 1920s that wasn't like about prohibition and the no, jazz No, because you age? had the flappers, the women getting the right to vote. Um, that changes politics. You had a bunch of legislation that was being passed. It's a, we don't need to talk about this. You were, okay. you were already bored. I see I, it. I was I'm so sorry. bored. I'm sorry. <laughs> so in the 1920s, she gets to have her name appear as a byline. Ooh. Which was a big deal. Yeah. Especially at the Associated Press because those... Stories are appearing in newspapers all over the country and possibly the world. Exactly. Nice. So in 1932, Hickok is assigned to cover the presidential campaign. And she is going to cover Eleanor Roosevelt. Okay, so she's assigned to presidential campaign, but she's still assigned to a candidate's wife. But here's why that's interesting. Uh, as you may know, I hope you know. Probably not. Franklin Roosevelt had polio. Yeah, I did know that. <laughs> Yay! Also, also from the movie Newsies. <laughs> well, good. Are you that, serious? That might have been Teddy Roosevelt. Which one was the governor of New York? They both were. Oh, okay. It was one of them. <laughs> okay, this elect this campaign is different because Franklin Roosevelt had polio. Yeah. So he cannot do the shake hands and kiss babies thing that presidential candidates do the way that previous candidates had done. Mm -hmm. He's not able to get out and really talk to the American people, see the American people, engage with them in the same way. But his wife could. Oh. So they have something of a political marriage, and she is a full partner in this, you know? She wants to be elected to the White House as much as he does. Interesting. So when we assign Hickok to cover Eleanor Roosevelt... It's not the typical covering of a future first lady. It's not, she wore pink today. 
Right. And she really loves baking pies. Yeah, and she tried a new hairstyle. Yeah, no, it's not that. So she's going to take that assignment, but she leaves it fairly quickly. She only lasts about a year doing that. Because as she's covering Eleanor, her and Eleanor become really good friends, and they become incredibly close. And Hickok realizes, I cannot be objective when covering Eleanor, so she quits her job. Okay, so that's like professional ethics. Yes. Okay, good. Because if you're going to write for the AP, you need to be able to criticize when it's needed. Sure, absolutely. And she can't do that. So she's going to take a job working for the new administration as soon as Roosevelt is elected and comes into the White House. Oh. Yeah. So she's not unemployed. Um, In particular, her job is going to be basically to help Eleanor in this new role as the First Lady. Okay. So she's like Eleanor's chief of staff or something? Something similar. Now, First Ladies didn't really have their own staff the way they have today. Yeah. So this is kind of a new position that Hickok is creating. It's more like she's almost like a personal assistant at first. And it grows from there. Okay. So one of the things that she's going to tell Eleanor to do is to hold press conferences for female reporters only. Oh, nice. Yes. So the first lady is going to have a way to have her message out there to an audience that's going to be excited and receptive because they're getting a chance to get in the room. And but they also haven't had that before. promoting the voices of female writers. Yes. By saying these are the only people who can ha- have access to the story. Yes. That's cool. And she's also going to encourage Eleanor to write so that her own writing appears in newspapers. That's so cool. she's going to have a column called Mrs. Roosevelt's Page and My Day, which is a daily column she did. God, I wish people were interested enough to know what I was doing every day that I could write a newspaper column called My Day mm-hmm. and people would want to read it. Well, and especially. I mean, I wouldn't even want to read it. I'm not as interesting as Eleanor Roosevelt, but I'm just saying it would be cool. Yeah, and it's really cool when we get to World War II because Eleanor Roosevelt is going to constantly, in that My Day article, talk about why we fight. And she keeps people motivated and supportive of the war. So those articles become a treasure How trove. How he president? He is elected to four terms. He serves three and I think 80 days of the fourth term and he dies. Oh my God. Four yeah. terms? He's the reason that we changed that. And presidents can only legally serve two terms now. All right. In 1940, Hickok becomes the executive secretary of the Women's Division of the Democratic National Committee. Okay. So she's in charge of the lady half Yes. Of the DNC. Yes. Okay. And once she gets that role, Eleanor invites her to live at the White House. Oh. Yeah. Definitely not objective, right? This is starting to seem a little unusual, Misty. It is. It is a little. That's a nice way to say that. It's a little unusual. Um, In 1945, Hickok is going to have some complications with her diabetes, and that forces her to leave her work for the Democratic National Committee. Mm Mm-hmm. But Eleanor is going to help her get a job with the New York State Democratic Committee. Okay. So not the National Committee, but the State Committee. Sure. In 1954, Hickok is going to move into Hyde Park, which is where the Roosevelt's private residence was. Yeah. To be closer to Eleanor. And the women are going to work together on a project called Women of Courage, which was a book about political leaders who were women. So this is after the war. Yes. And after... Roosevelt has died. Uh, FDR died. Yes. So... It's hard because they're both Roosevelt's. Yeah. So and F- she's Eleanor Roosevelt Roosevelt. Did you know that? She was already a Roosevelt? She was already a Roosevelt. Is that incestuous or... They were like cousins of cousins. Okay. So creepy. Just going to move on? Yeah. Just going to move on from that. So FDR has died and they move back to Hyde Park. Yes. And it's just Eleanor 
and Hickok. Yes. And Hickok is going blind and in declining health. Yes. And they're just chilling together. Yes. Okay. So it was always known that these two women had a close friendship. Is that a euphemism? Well, that's the question, right? So in 2016, Susan Quinn wrote a dual biography called Eleanor and Hick, The Love Affair That Shaped a First Lady. And in this book, she's going to... She went by Hick? Mm -hmm. Sometimes. Okay. And she is going to posit that their relationship was... Romantic? Yes. Sexual? Yes. Extremely personal? Yes. Okay. So we don't know. I mean, we just can't know. We have evidence in letters that they did have a very close relationship. And, you know, in one context reading them, it could sound like they are more than friends. But you also have to remember people talked differently in the 1930s and 40s than they do now. Sure. So when I read the language of the 1930s and 40s and somebody's talking about my dearest friend, my bosom buddy. That may not mean the same thing to me as it did to them. And you just have to keep that historical context. So Amy Bloom wrote a novel called White Houses. Yes. And it, and and that novel is very good. And it's about Eleanor and Lorena Hickok. Yes. And you have a quote here from Amy Bloom, which is, we have 3,000 letters between them. Yes. The volume of that yes. is striking. 3,000 letters between them. Uh, which are warm and passionate and exactly the kind of letters you'd expect lovers who are still in the first blush of a romance to exchange with each other. So that's how she characterizes yes. them. Yes. So you can see where the characterization is coming from, but you are not convinced personally. I'm not going to say that I'm not convinced personally. I'm saying that the historical record... Oh, God, this again. Yes. Does not allow me to definitively say... This is what their relationship was. But uh, they... It is very likely. Okay. That's all, that's, the a, that's historical as far as you're going to say. does not explicitly state. You know, we're not lawyers. I know that, but I don't like this idea that we miscategorize history just because it's scandalous and I want to sell a book. Well, I don't think it's scandalous in any... It, oh, it would have been scandalous, though. It would have okay, been, Imagine but... you're a president during World War II. Well, no, I mean, it was scandalous then, but in 2016, I don't think that it's scandalous. It would still be scandalous today. You're president. You have a first lady. And not only is she having an affair, but she moved her affair partner into the White House. That is scandalous. Oh, and then by the way. But you said, but you said they have a political marriage. They do. And that Eleanor was on board for a political marriage, which means that it is a. Their marriage did not start as a political marriage, but it evolved to that. Yes. So, but that's basically a business arrangement. They were really good friends and partners, yes. So, but that is in the historical record. So, that means that, I mean, to me, what that means is that it's not a slight against either of them. If Eleanor, oh, no, 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 I don't mean that. I mean, it would be scandalous to the American public. I think that they were both fine with the setup that they had. In which case, I think if if we think that that's possible or probable, then it's an important story to tell because I think people, especially people who are uh, gay themselves, would be would find that kind of an affirming story, right? Eleanor Roosevelt is a very important historical figure, and if you think about her as being a 
lesbian or bisexual woman, that's kind of a cool representation in in a way, right? Yes. So I think it's an important story to tell if you think there's sufficient evidence to support the the story. Historians just really like it when the historical record is clear. Well, I really like it when the story is nice. And that is the difference. So there are several literary versions of this story. Uh, some of them more closely aligned with what Missy would call the historical record. Uh, White Houses by Amy Bloom. That's the one that I read. Um, it's a very good book. And Undiscovered Country, I have downloaded on my Kindle. That's also a book recommended by Greer McAllister. That's Kelly O'Connor McNeese. So, and in White Houses, Amy Bloom is pretty definite on what she thinks this relationship yes, is. Yes, but Amy Bloom has done a lot of historical research. Right. I mean, most historical fiction writers spend years and years doing the historical ones, research yes. uh, in order to write a book. But yeah, Amy Bloom did a lot of research and did interviews about her research. And um, and then she wrote White Houses. Okay. Yes. I'm a little... You should read it. I might read that. It's fiction, but it's good. That was That is something I could read. So let's talk about another investigative journalist. Okay. Marvel Cook. I love her name. Right? It's very cool. I love her name. So she was she lived from 1903 to 2000. Yes. And she was born with the name Marvel? Yes. Okay. As far as I can tell. Yes. Awesome. So she is born Marvel Jackson in Minnesota. I feel like Marvel Jackson is a cooler name than Marvel Cook. You think so? Yeah. Marvel Jackson. I don't know. I like Cook. But anyway, she's going to graduate in 1925 from the University of Minnesota. And then she moves to New York City. And she... What people moving from the Midwest to New York City? Well, you know. (laughs) What else are you going to do? If you don't want to be a farmer. (laughs) So she becomes a secretary for W.E.B. Du Bois. So like secretary, like. Right. It's, um, I would say more like what we think of today as assistant but he's grooming her okay to go into writing okay and the reason that their relationship is so close is because he had previously dated her mother okay so he has he's like kind of a family stepfather role okay yeah like oh hey we go way back so he definitely feels it's some kind of paternal or personal affection for her and wants to maybe mentor her and help her to succeed okay but so, I mean, but he was a writer, right? He was a writer. Um, he's a Harvard graduate. He's the founder of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Okay. And their primary magazine, mm-hmm. literary journal, yeah, publication, is called yeah. The Crisis. Okay. So he's come, he's the managing editor of The Crisis. Okay. And eventually gets her into The Crisis as well. Okay. So she the magazine the mag. He doesn't get her into a crisis. <laughs> he gets her into the crisis. Got it. He's eventually going to leave just to move on to other pursuits. Mm-hmm. So she is going to join the staff of the Amsterdam News when he leaves. It's not that their relationship soured or anything like that. It's just they both professionally have moved to different things. Okay. So when she moves to the Amsterdam News, she becomes the women's editor and she becomes a general assignment reporter. That's not bad. It's it's good yeah. for the time. Yeah. And she is going to help organize the first newspaper guild for black-owned newspapers. Wow. Yes. So it's during this time. But she was the first female at that newspaper, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. And uh, the first African-American female. Because they're... First female. Yes. Uh, during the time she works at the newspaper guilds, 
organization. She's also going to get involved in a picket line. And it's during this picket line that she's going to be approached by a member of the Communist Party. Okay. Benjamin Davis. Uh, He's the editor of The Liberator. And later, I think he was a New York City councilman. He is going to convince her to join the Communist Party. Okay. And she said later of this exchange, he said to her, why aren't you a member of the Communist Party? And she said, because no one's ever asked me to be. (laughs) And so when she learned a little bit about it, she became a member and she stayed a member of the Communist Party for the rest of her life. Interesting. Yeah. Meeting her on a picket line. Yeah. Means that she probably had some values very closely aligned with the Communist Party. Right. Because she was seeing that the workers at these newspapers were being mistreated. Yeah. And she thought that the newspaper owners were getting too much of the profits. The workers were being left with very little with bad conditions. You know what this sounds like? The movie Newsies. Oh, my God. (laughs) We just have to subtitle this episode all about Newsies. I haven't seen that movie since I was a kid. I'm just saying. Go back and watch it. Um, Eventually, she's going to marry Cecil Cook, who was a sailor and Olympic athlete. From the Bahamas. From the Bahamas. And that's how we get Marvel Cook. Yes. Okay. So she, at some point during her tenure as a reporter yes becomes an investigative reporter yes okay so um one of the things that she's going to investigate is how african-american domestic workers were treated so the way that a lot of these women would be hired was they would go to a street corner and then a housewife would drive to the street corner and pick them up and this would probably be like middle class upper to middle class women who needed some domestic work done in their home but they didn't have the money to have a constant maid Okay, so this is like, I have family coming, I need my home clean. Okay. I have a big event, or I'm sick, I don't feel like doing it, whatever it is. Okay. So, she's standing out with these women, and she is going to do kind of what Nellie Bly did. She pretends to be one of these domestic workers okay. to see what the conditions are like. And one of the women told her, hey, be careful, because these women who pick us up and take us to their homes, they'll try to trick you. They'll try to pay you less, or they'll try to tell you you worked fewer hours than you work. So you have to keep track of what you're doing so that you can be paid appropriately. And the very first time that she is picked up and she goes to do domestic work, the woman who had hired her did try to short her money. Oh. And so Marvel was like, no, no, no. This is how much I work. This is how much you're going to pay me. Oh. How much? So how much would they get paid? This is like 1920s, 1930s? The 1930s. So we're talking about Great Depression era. Okay. So when I tell you this wage... I just I need you to keep in mind it's the Great Depression. Okay. They're making about 80 cents an hour. Oh. So that's incredibly low, but we are still in the Great Depression. God, I can't imagine. Yeah. So she she did this uh, the same thing that Nellie Bly did, right, which is she serialized yes. the articles and then at some point they were sold as a compilation. Yes. And that compilation was called The Bronx Slave Market. Yes. And so that's a very yeah strongly worded title. Well, and think about when she's writing that. We're two generations, maybe three generations out from the Civil War. And high Jim Crow time. Well, I guess Jim Crow was in the South, but right? The well, 30s? Yeah, but you had um, during World War One this great migration, lots of black families from the South had left the South to move to get factory jobs during world war one yeah and so you have a lot of southern african-americans moving into new york particularly and philadelphia and boston also so but to call it the slave the bronx slave market insinuates that she uncovered very 
terrible, yes, almost unlivable conditions. Because that's not, I, I mean, that's just not a term that you would loosely throw around. It's not. It's not at all. So she found that these women to be enduring something horrible. And she said some of them only make 30 cents an hour. And so, and I would imagine sometimes they make nothing. Like yes, if they don't get absolutely. picked up that day, they make nothing. Absolutely. Or if they get swindled out of what they should have earned. And these women are also facing harassment because... There's nobody there to protect you. Right. So anything could happen. Nowhere to protect you on the street or in in the the home home. or when you negotiate for pay and you're powerless if somebody wants to shortchange you. And if you go to the police, it's very likely that you will not be believed. Yeah. So there's all sorts of imbalances there. And also just the idea of standing on the street where the street corner waiting for a white person right. to come and basically buy you for a day. Well, and to select you out of the crowd, right? Yeah. So Man. there's even competition there between these women because you want to be selected because you want to bring home that money. That's so awful. I know. As a result of writing this, right? Yes. This, the state of affairs for these domestic workers becomes more well known because this yes. is widely read. Yes, and I wouldn't say that it's a Nellie Bly situation where we immediately start passing legislation about it and we start having this huge rallying around to fix the conditions, but it's awareness. Yeah, and it's kind of a, I mean, to use a loaded phrase, it's kind of a hearts and minds campaign, right? Like, yes, you're slowly teaching people about the reality of what's happening and slowly kind of changing one person's mind or getting them to just shift their paradigm a little bit and think about it differently. And that's probably why it has this kind of very hot button title. Yes, exactly. So she's going to do a couple other fairly important stories. Oh, so this wasn't her only investigative? No. Wow. Okay. So in one case, she's assigned to write about a series of killings that had been committed by a young black man who had been sent home from a prison for the criminally insane. So he got sent home, and then he got murdered. He got sent home, and then he committed murders. What? So what? they sent him... Wait. So he had been previously incarcerated. For being criminally insane. Yes. He gets out of prison. Yes. He goes on a killing spree. I wouldn't say killing spree, but yes. Okay. Okay, so the family of this young man, Mm -hmm. while he has absolutely committed a crime, also feels like he is the victim of a crime. Because the conditions in the prison for the criminally insane were just so terrible. Yeah. That they feel like his mental state has devolved even more. Okay. So so the family wouldn't talk to white reporters. Because they felt like these white reporters are going to paint a portrait of our son that is only based on what he did and not take into consideration all of these other factors. But they talked to Marvel Cook. But they would talk to Marvel Cook. Wow. Because they felt like she's not going to be completely sympathetic, but she's going to consider what his life would be like and put that into context in this story as well. So they trusted her more yes, to humanize mm-hmm. to humanize the story yes. and not to exonerate him, but no. to just to humanize it. Right. And to say, you know, these conditions at this prison need to change because this could happen again. Yeah. It's making criminals. Yes. yes. And so this is in a book. Yes. I'm reading this from your notes. Yeah. I didn't know this before. So this is a nonfiction book, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah. This was, um, a book about women's place in the news. The book is called A Place in the News. From the woman's pages to the front page. And so Miss Cook was being interviewed and she had talked a lot about that case. She talked a lot about that case because that was one in which her race 
actually opened a door for her. Yeah. Rather than closed it. And she used it to bring a story to light. Yes. Okay. After 1952, she decides to leave journalism. And then she works for the Committee for the Arts, Sciences, and Professions. So I will tell you, there are no literary treatments of Marvel Cook that I am aware of. And so that would be a great novel for somebody to write. So an, uh, it would be. And so an assistant professor, uh, a college professor of drama and dram- dramatic arts, wanted to write a one-act play. Okay. And she, I think, was just kind of Googling women. And um, so this professor, whose name is Jacqueline Lawton, wrote a one-act play called Edges of Time about Marvel Cook. As far as I know, it's only been like staged as like table readings. Okay. Um, so, so it's not like widely published or widely available or it's not coming to a theater near you. But yet. Uh, she's the first person, as far as I can tell, to do a, like a, a literary treatment of Marvel Cook. But yeah, I think that it, this is certainly just as interesting as the story, the life stories of the other women that we've been talking about. So, I, I mean, hopefully somebody writes it. I don't know why you wouldn't. Maybe I will. With all that free time you have? Yeah, all that free time I have. So the last person I want to talk about today is actually one of my favorite writers. Okay. Joan Didion. So Joan Didion and Rachel Carson and a few other writers in the 60s helped to um, invent what we call new journalism. And again, that is writing entirely nonfiction stories and not personal stories, but reporting So personal accounts of things or attending events or interviewing people. So a kind of documentary writing, but using literary techniques so that it doesn't read like a newspaper article. It reads more like a story. So people will become more invested in it. Yes, because a narrative has a a kind of power. I don't want to say it's more or less powerful, but it has a kind of power that a reported story or a traditional newspaper story doesn't have. And it can draw people in. It definitely attracts different readers and in lots of cases, more readers to, to a story. And especially if it's about something like Rachel Carson and pesticides, you really want to get the widest possible audience. So new journalism is something that's written in newspapers and magazines, but it's also things that are written in books. So there are full length nonfiction books uh, written in a literary style. And the most famous nonfiction novel that nonfiction novel nonfiction novel okay is in cold blood okay by truman capote oh okay so because that's a nonfiction book right it's 100 percent true but it is written as a, a novel. narrative prose? Yeah, it, yeah it's written you read it and it feels like you're reading a novel i didn't know those were called novels they're not really. Oh. That's what Truman Capote called them. Okay. He called it a nonfiction novel. But Joan Didion, all the writers in the 60s in, in that kind of group there in California, they called it new journalism. Oh, got it. Got now it. Now it's called creative nonfiction. I've heard creative nonfiction. I've yeah. never heard nonfiction novel. Yeah. So I'm about to think about all those students who have told me over the years in this novel, but it's a history yeah, book. And I'm like, yeah. oh my God, I was wrong. Yeah. Or when my students write about poems and they call it stories. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, no. So she wrote a lot of articles. She reported on a lot of things. And in new journalism, the chihuahuas are at it. And new journalism 
uh, is now kind of standard. And, th- and when I say standard, I don't mean that's how all journalism is. But it's not unusual to find in a newspaper a story or two written that way. Right. I mean, I, I don't know how else to explain it other than to just tell you to go read it. But David Foster Wallace now writes this way. Um, I could name a million writers. He doesn't now don't write bother. this way because he's dead. But he don't wrote bother. this way. A feature piece. And so... A lot of people tried to undermine it as being not as well written or not as highly regarded. But in fact, now we kind of regard it as more challenging to write and just as literary as a short story or a novel. So she helped pioneer that. And she was actually a very, I mean, she had a, she has a very cool life story in the, like the fifties or sixties, she moved to New York to intern at Mademoiselle Magazine. She wanted to be a writer. She wanted to be a journalist. She wanted to intern at Mademoiselle Magazine. Didn't Sylvia Plath do that too? Yes. Cool. And as you know, in that time period, if you were a woman, you couldn't just like go live in New York City by yourself without a husband and not living with your parents if you weren't a widow. You might be led astray. You might end up with bad morals. So they had, and she and and Sylvia Plath both lived in the same building the Barbizon Hotel. Okay. And it was it was a, like a boarding house or apartment house or a hotel for women only. So there were like matrons. Kind of like a dorm. Yeah. And so if you were working or interning, uh, and so this was kind of like the time period where women started to enter the workforce before they got married sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so if you were one of those women, you, obviously we can't just let you live alone. Right. Right. So they had like house moms who would, you know, not let men in the building or make sure you were coming home. Not, yeah, there was a curfew, not let men in your room. They would come knock on your door if they thought there was a man in your room. And it was a place where it was just all women living together. So there, I mean, I could see some of the appeal. Yeah. Right? You could form strong friendships and have some level of independence. Community. And, Especially I mean, if you're moving from the Midwest. Yeah. You have a built-in community. And it was a safe place to live. And it was called the Barbizon Hotel because that's where Barbizon models lived. Oh, because they would also be there without their chaperones. They would also, yeah, Mm -hmm. be there as professionals. So while Joan Didion and Sylvia, well, actually Sylvia Plath is in this book, there's a novel called Dollhouse, also by Fiona Davis, and it's about the Barbizon Hotel. And it's a very cool story. Like half the book takes place uh, in the time when Sylvia Plath lived there, and half the book takes place in like the modern times. Okay. And there's, I think, a woman who's still living there. From all those years ago? From all those years ago because of rent control. And so it's a very cool book. It's called The Dollhouse. And of course, if you want literature by Joan Didion, there's a lot of it. (laughs) (laughs) The Last Love Song and The Year of Magical Thinking are my two favorite if you just want. There's a book called The White Album she has. Same name as The Beatles Album. That's what I was Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But she, I mean, she's still writing today and she has a lot of, she's written a lot now about how to write. So writing advice. She's 85. Yeah. She's cool. Wow, she's still writing and she's 85. That's crazy. I don't know why. Like, I think, like, after you're 80, it's like, <laughs> go home. You've done enough. I mean, you kind of have. Like, you should have a you period You can have your... a break. Yeah, yeah. But if, but if you enjoy it. But if it, you would like it. A lot, of what she's, a lot of what she's written is about California. So she, she has a great essay where she breaks up with New York City. And it's called Goodbye to All That. 
She has an essay about these weird, creepy winds that they have in California. The Santa Ana winds? Yeah. That's on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Okay. Everything goes back to that. Um, And Newsies, apparently. Yes. Uh, But, yeah, she's... So a lot of what she writes is about or takes place in California. She has essays about feminism, about women's movements. She has an essay called On Self-Respect. She has an essay called The Women's Movement. So, I, I mean, I would write, she has a book called Slouching Toward Bethlehem, a book called The White Album. So you should read her too, but that's okay. It'd be you nice. You know what? Let's it, just stay in our lanes. But it won't happen. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> so that's, I mean, I feel like we went all the way from the 1700s to someone who's still living and writing today. Right. And I think that these women have shown how the world has changed for female journalists, in yeah. some extent. Is it perfect? No. 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 Not even close. I mean, it, you can tell it's not perfect. Turn on the news. How many women are reporting the news on TV? Yeah, you know, we didn't even cover that. We didn't even do television journalism. That's a whole other... Yeah. Whole other thing. Nobody wants to talk about that. But, I mean, just... J- not like not like 24-hour news channels, but just like NBC Nightly News. Right. Those kinds of... Those big stately well-respected news programs, how many women lead those shows? Not many. Yeah. Right? And so we have women doing important investigative work. Absolutely. On on TV and in writing and doing some cool interviews. Mm-hmm. But the representation-wise, it's not perfect. It's not ideal. What I think what was really interesting to me doing all this research for these women was that they got stories that male reporters could not have gotten. That's true. I mean, a man couldn't have gone into a female insane asylum. Right. Or when we're talking about Marvel, she had access to that family that nobody else at the time had. So just by virtue of being who they were, Mm -hmm. they had some ways in. Right. But also, they focused on validating and telling the stories and experiences that women were going through. Absolutely. Right. So not only... Was Nellie Bly the only person who could go into an insane asylum? Nellie Bly is someone who said, this is a story worth telling. These are women worth hearing from. The same with Marvel Cook and the domestic workers. Yes, absolutely. So I it, I feel like they're doing things that are dangerous or they're doing things that are pioneering. Mm-hmm. And they're doing it not for fun, but because they think women's voices are important to hear. Right, you don't have the whole story if you're leaving out half the population. And they want and they want to change conditions. Yes. Yeah, it's not just about the journalism, right? Yeah, it's not like, oh, I'm going to get a good scoop. I mean, sure, that's part of it. That's your profession. The other thing is they're entering professions that are basically closed to them. Absolutely. Are, so I'm not just breaking into an insane asylum. I'm kind of breaking into the profession. The professional And in, in the case of Lorena Hickok... Writing for the AP with your name on a byline. Yeah. That's remarkable and important. And I mean, now, of course, lots of women write for for the Associated Press and other newswires and have their names on the stories. But I mean, at the time. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. So I think that's pretty cool. I mean, I think the state of things is not necessarily cool. I mean, where we started with two thirds of women saying that they have been harassed or made to feel unsafe or intimidated at work. Well, the good news is. So that happens across the board. So don't let that dissuade you from your passion. It's going to happen in any profession. <laughs> I don't mean that. So, but. 
That's but, not also, the good news. but also the Twitter harassment. And I mean, at some point when we get into that, when we when we talk more about things like Gamergate and and online trolls, it's not just that women get more. Right. It's that the kinds of things that are harsher. Right. Or scarier. And violent. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how to feel about it except ugh. I think Make it better, Misty. <laughs> I'm gonna try. I think like we've said before in other cases, getting more women to see this as a valid career option will lessen what is happening now. Mm-hmm. Once it becomes unremarkable, then it will be unremarkable. We yeah. won't care. We won't talk about it. Yeah. And I think looking at these women helps to do that because you're showing that it can be done. You're putting that out there into people's imaginations, representation. It's all connected. But if we don't have women following in their footsteps, it gets worse for the people who are already there. Yeah. Although I don't know with print journalism the way it is, if that's a viable viable career for anyone. I mean, we're always going to, I mean, I don't know about print on paper. We're always going to have written journalism. Yes, absolutely. And we need good journalists. So. Yeah. Intrepid. Yes. That's the word I want to use to describe these people. Intrepid. That's a good word. Yeah. I feel like it's the name of a boat. Ship? I think it is. Okay. I don't know. That seems historical. You should know that. Um, If it's going to be like. It's going to be like a Star Wars thing or something. I mean, you should have known it. Talk about stay in your lane. <laughs> so, Lager, what's next in your lady life? Well, so we go home from Galveston tomorrow. After your presentation. After my presentation. And then on Tuesday, I am flying to Denver for another presentation. Um, for what conference? For the Online Learning Consortium Conference in Denver at the Rockies Gaylord. And that presentation is called What Flavor is Your Online Class? I'm going to guess the answer shouldn't be vanilla. Shrimp ramen. Yeah, you should just tell people that's the answer. That's the answer. Shrimp ramen. So you are going to that. And I think like half of our campus is going to that. A lot of faculty from our college or from our campus are going and our dean is going as well. So you know what that means for me? Is this like a cats away kind of situation? I have zero meetings scheduled next week. (laughs) Zero. What are you going to do with your life? I don't know. I'm going to be lost. I might need a chaperone. (laughs) You might actually get work done is what you mean. I'm going to be free range. I'll be gone. I can't harass you for podcasting things. You don't have any meetings. My boss will be out of town. My coworkers are all gone. <sighs> is utopia too strong a word? It's I, too strong. I, I think it I'm is. I'm going to reel it back in. I mean, you're not You're not going to be drinking out of a coconut. It's going to be pleasant. Okay, It will fine. be a pleasant change of pace to have zero meetings. <sighs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Profess Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty, and I'm downloading Amy Bloom's White Houses right now. And I'm Allegra, and I'm writing a reading quiz for Misty right now. Well, that's not fair. (laughs) We'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode, what you'd like to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are. Extremely great. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at ProfessHers, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email, same address, ProfessHers at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you to everyone who's been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all those things. And we hope we re- we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend or enemy. <laughs> and remember, regard yourself as a noun, not an adjective. <laughs>